ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, I'm curious, Norman, if you had a chance to look inside your arteries to see how healthy they are, would you want to have a look? Well, I did have the opportunity once to see what they looked like from the outside and that wasn't a pretty sight. Yeah, I don't think I would. I just want to think that they're like pink and squeaky clean and plaque free. But I have been talking to someone who did get to have a peek inside his arteries and it gave him the shock of his life and really prompted him to change things up and get healthier. And so he was a participant in a research project looking into whether this approach of taking a look inside your own body can help people stick with heart health recommendations. Scaring the proverbial out of you to change your behaviour. <laughs> yeah, well, talking about scaring the proverbial out of you, I've got another story for us today, which is on this blood fat in, that doesn't get measured very often and where maybe 20% of the population has it at a raised level and it contributes significantly, possibly as significantly as low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, the nasty form of cholesterol, to heart attacks and strokes. Does this blood fat have a name? It has a name. It's called lipoprotein little a. Little a. I can't wait to hear that. And I've also got a story about the link between the youth justice system and kids' risk of poor health or even dying. I think it's fairly well known that people who've been in jail have a higher likelihood of death or health problems, which is something we absolutely should be better at remedying. But I was really shocked to discover that this health risk in kids is there even for kids who don't ever go into custody. It's just any contact with the justice system. Yeah, it's a marker for a lot of different things in life and uh, not simple cause and effect. But first, let's take a look at some health news. And something that has come out in the last week or so is the government's response to the long COVID inquiry. That kicked off way back in 2022. It was tabled in April last year, looking into the problem of long COVID, which so many Australians live with, and what could have been done to support them. So let's have a bit of a look at the government's response and then also the response in turn of the patient advocacy groups representing people with long COVID. Yeah, we'll have the link to this um, on our website. But essentially, the, there was a whole list of recommendations made by the inquiry and the government's responded. Um, so, for example, the first one was that we should have a database of COVID infections, complications, hospitalizations, vaccination rates. It's all, it's all together in one place. Well, that makes sense. And, um, and it should be monitored by this new body, which has not yet been created, called the Centres for Disease Control. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So that's supported by the government. What's also supported by the government is that we should just have a single definition for long COVID, which is the World Health Organization definition of what's called PASC, post-acute um, um, sequelae of COVID. And that's a very broad definition. So it captures a lot of people and doesn't exclude very many. Should be then, then there's a whole series of recommendations from the inquiry that the government just notes, which means you know, when a government just notes, it means they're not going to do anything about it. And one of the key ones that they noted and weren't going to do anything about it was an advi a multidisciplinary advisory body, this is what the inquiry recommended, on indoor air quality and uh, you know, doing something about that. 
Yeah, well, that's something we've spoken about at length on the health report before. And if people want to listen to a little piece that I did on that, we'll put the link to that on our website as well. And those sorts of things that the that the inquiry or the, the government noted, but that sort of hasn't said that they're going to act on necessarily, are mainly the concerns of the patient health group. So um, very shortly after the government's response came out, there was response from the basically the advocacy group representing patients with long COVID and they're really not happy. The words that they use are profound disappointment and concern. They note that there's zero mention of financial support for long COVID sufferers who can't work and don't qualify for existing supports. And then they they also call out what you just said, that the committee acknowledges that the only way to avoid long COVID is to prevent being infected with COVID in the first place uh, and that addressing air quality as a preventive measure would help reduce the spread of infections, but there just isn't support for that recommendation. Have we learned our lessons? Well, see, you can choose your own answer to that question. And speaking of indoor air quality or just air quality in general, there's another piece of health news out just um, from the last day or so about any kind of exposure to fine particulate matter and the, the way that that drives disease. So this isn't about COVID, this is about particles in the air. Yeah, there's been a lot of long history of these fine particulates and health, and they come from traffic fumes, essentially, mostly diesel, but some, to some extent from petrol as well. And essentially, it acts like smoking, on your body. There, the evidence suggests that it gets inside your body, you breathe it in, it gets into your bloodstream via your lungs, creates inflammation and starts to set up processes very similar to smoking. And it's been controversial. People who don't want to do anything about air pollution suggest, well, it's, you know, it's, this is just not real. But now there's been a study of 59 million people um, where they've closely correlated uh, people's exposure, these are people aged over 65 in the United States, and they've closely correlated their exposure to fine particulates over a period of three years related to their hospital admissions for coronary heart disease, heart attacks, strokes, and other problems. And what they showed was a very close correlation between the the dose of fine particulates they received over three years and their first admissions for things like heart attacks, strokes, even aneurysms and other cardiovascular problems. So it's still not cause and effect, but they've controlled for many other variables such as poverty, um, such as housing um, and many other uh, things that could be um, affecting the results. And yet again, fine particulates show up as what's likely to be a causative factor in coronary heart disease. The the fact that it would cause damage to the lungs makes sense to me. I'm always really surprised when I hear this link between fine, fine particulate matter and heart disease. What's actually happening once it gets past the lungs? Um, the assumption is it's like smoking. So you could say, well, we can understand why smoking causes lung cancer, but smoking and coronary heart disease... Well, it's about damage to the blood vessels. It's about irritation and inflammation. Um, so, for example, and we're going to talk about atherosclerosis a little bit later in the show, is that for atherosclerosis to occur, 
couple of things have got to happen. One is you've got to have the toxic blood fats. The blood fats have got to get inside the artery. And then you've got to have an inflammatory process inside the artery with the immune system being activated, which then causes the atherosclerosis and the damage. And then you get disruption of the lining of the artery and a blood clot and smoking increases the clottability of your blood. And that creates the environment for a heart attack or stroke. And the assumption is that uh, fine particulates do exactly the same thing. So action on air quality is needed across the board. Uh, So sticking with heart health, if you go for a heart health check, you will usually be given something called a cardiovascular disease risk score. It's a probability that you'll have a heart attack or a stroke sometime in the next five years. And if your risk is high, you'll be given homework improving your diet or your lifestyle, or being prescribed medications to reduce your risk. But making changes is hard, and not everyone sticks with them. So a study has tested whether showing people actual pictures of the plaque inside their arteries is more persuasive than a simple risk score. One of the people in the study was Chris White, who said the image he saw gave him a rude shock. So I went along to these people, absolutely sure that, of course, this would not apply to me. My father died at 58 years of age, but my father's lifestyle was very different from me. He enjoyed a smoke and a drink, and um, I was more of a sporty sort of person. And so I did not think this was going to happen until I received the image and, and got a bit of a shock. In my mind, I was immune from such things because I went through a very good schooling. I was lucky enough to be engaged in, uh, you know, cross-country running and, and bike riding and swimming and tennis and squash and Australian rules football and so forth. So I always thought that I was immune. And I must say, I thought that I was bulletproof. And unfortunately, that I was proven very wrong. I thought there must be some sort of mistake until I was shown the image. And once I was shown the image, it was clear. So normally, if you had a normal heart health check, they'd give you a probability of your risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next five years. Do you think that would have come as a shock to you, given that you thought you were bulletproof? Like even a number like that, would that have come as a shock? I guess it would have done, but you've got to understand you were talking to a person that was absolutely certain that with his upbringing that uh, I was going to be immune. So, yes, no matter how it would have been shown to me, it would have been a shock. But the important thing for me was to actually have the image in front of me. It's quite uh, surprising to look at your own heart. And uh, it was in living colour. Very glad it was in living colour. And um, (laughs) it shows, uh, oh, reds and blues and the actual plaque shows up as a white or yellow uh, within the the arteries and while mine wasn't terribly invasive it did show me that it was there and I knew that if I didn't do something about it it would just become worse. When they showed me the photograph I took a bit of a gulp and said well I think we'd better do something about this. I've joined a gym and I'm also a member of the swimming pool in Hobart. I'm very lucky also as I said because I'm a farmer and farmers lift and carry and do a certain amount of work every day. One of my changes was that they suggested that I go on to what they call a statin. One of the legacies of my wonderful father was that he um, did not take care of his heart I'm grateful to him because, in a way, he showed me that this is the better way to live your life. But he also showed me that it's not necessarily 
and always a lifestyle thing. How active or inactive you are, sometimes you are just vulnerable to certain illnesses. So that's Chris White, who is a participant in this study that is led by Kristen Whitmore. And I kind of love Kristen's backstory, Norman, because she's actually a nurse. And this research has come out of her own frustrations with sitting with patients trying to communicate risk. So as a nurse, I found one of the biggest barriers in getting people to understand the importance of lifestyle change and medication adherence is that this particular group of people feel fine. So when people go in to have, you know, their cardiovascular risk discussion with a GP or a nurse, we talk about their probability of their cardiovascular risk, so having like a heart attack or a stroke. But it's really hard for some of these people to see that it actually applies to them. This study, we tested the hypothesis that showing people an image of their artery so they could actually see the plaque build up, that it wasn't an abstract probability, but the beginning of a real problem that potentially these images could help them to adhere to changes that would reduce their cardiovascular risk. Right. So normally you're given a number and then you sort of sent away with instructions to do things like take statins or change your lifestyle and you're you're sort of finding that people weren't always doing that. Yeah, because it's the silent nature of plaque buildup. You know, these people, they look fine, they feel fine. Some of these people might be going to the gym, might be doing everything that they need to do, or they might not be doing the things that they need to do. And when we give them their risk of having a heart attack or a stroke through the traditional conventional methods, it's very abstract. So it's hard for them to say, well, actually, is there an actual threat to myself? And do I actually need to make these changes? And so the use of CV images, as well as their cardiovascular information, within this discussion, it has the potential to bridge the individual's knowledge gap and hopefully, you know, then improve adherence to their statins and lifestyle modification. So when you followed them up, were the intervention group better than the control group? Yeah. So what was really interesting is at this was a three-year study. And what we saw in the intervention group is they had a significant reduction in their cardiovascular risk. And that could be, and we do think it's attributed to their statin use. So these people were also prescribed a statin throughout the study. But what was really interesting is they had a really high adherence rate. So at the three-year mark, these people that were intermediate risk, they had a premature history of coronary artery disease in their family, and they saw the images. They had the significant reduction in cardiovascular risk versus those in the control group. And then what was even more interesting is we did this um, analysis because we tried to see, okay, so the intervention group, they had a reduction in cardiovascular risk, but was it the images that, you know, helped to prompt change? So like this teachable moment of, oh my gosh, I can see plaque, I need to do something about it. And so in this exploratory analysis, and this is only in the intervention group, we were able to see that those people at the one and two year mark who remembered seeing their coronary image, 
that they had a greater reduction in their systolic blood pressure and their waist at three years versus those people in intervention who couldn't remember seeing their image. So what you've got Mm -hmm. is people who had similar risk factors going in and the image itself isn't magical. What's magical is actually sticking to the interventions, your statins or whatever you've been prescribed. Yeah, so it's showing that the image has the ability to bridge that gap of knowledge. It helps the GP within the decision-making process, but it's really about helping the participant or the patient, the individual in front of you to actively see oh my gosh, there is actually plaque in my coronary arteries and I need to do something about it. And we saw that through, you know, the high adherence rate. You know, normally in this cohort where we have people at intermediate risk, adherence is really low. And that's a really big problem that we have is low adherence. So these images within a cardiovascular risk discussion can help facilitate shared decision-making So this sort of intervention requires imaging equipment. That's a resource that's not available everywhere and it costs money to use it. What would it take to roll this program out more broadly in Australia? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So we can actively, in most urban places, access coronary artery calcium scoring. And the great thing with it is it's not invasive and it's got a very minimal exposure to radiation. So the information that we get from the scan is huge because it can really help to reclassify people's cardiovascular risk to either low, moderate or high risk. When we involve patients in their own care and we give them all the information, they in turn can make informed decisions. And it might be just that those images is all that's needed to prompt and help that person to make changes that can prevent them from having a major heart attack or stroke. Kristen, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much as well. Kristen Whitmore is a cardiovascular research nurse at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania, and she's a PhD candidate through the University of Melbourne and the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. You're with The Health Report. So following up on that, Tegan, um, I've been following a story for many years now about a lipid, a blood fat in the bloodstream that doesn't get much publicity. So we hear, you know, in the health report, we talk about cholesterol, high density lipoprotein cholesterol, low density lipoprotein cholesterol. But there's this one called lipoprotein little a. You're doing PR for it. And I'm you being PR. bankrolled by lipoprotein little a? Well, yeah, the lipoprotein little a industry, that's right. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I've avoided covering it to some extent because people say, well, it doesn't really mean anything, we can't, can't treat it and so on. And I was triggered by a paper last week that I read which showed that lipoprotein little a, in its own right, independent of whether there's, you know, we talked about inflammation earlier with um, uh, small particulates, Independent of inflammation in your body, lipoprotein little a was associated with serious outcomes in terms of coronary heart disease. And I thought, it's time to go back to this and look at this substance in the blood and just what's going on here. And when you actually look at the latest research, it's worrying. 
Let's talk about it a little more. After you've heard this conversation I had with uh, cardiologist Professor David Hare, who's got an interest in LP little a at Austin Health in Melbourne. Lipoprotein little a is involved in much development of disease in coronary arteries, but it's very rarely measured and therefore runs in the background causing a lot of serious disease, early deaths, early heart attacks, early strokes. And the majority of people who have an elevated LP little a actually have no idea that they've got it. And sometimes they've therefore got no idea why people in their family have had heart attacks with only a reasonably good cholesterol. So let's just pick apart the technical side of this a little bit so people understand it. Because most people know you get the cholesterol done, you get the measure back, you get your total cholesterol, your high-density lipoprotein cholesterol. And if you've really done your research and listened to the health report, you'll know that's the good form of cholesterol. And then there's the LDL cholesterol, which is actually a mixture of cholesterols, but they're the ones that are doing the damage and which cholesterol-reducing drugs attack. Where does LP little a fit in with that picture? Well, it's not measured by any of the standard cholesterol measurements. So when but you is get... it part of the LDL-HDL story or entirely separate? You have to regard it as entirely separate, even though it's got some LDL attached to it, but it's entirely separate. We'll come back to why it's not measured in a moment, but what does it cause? Does it cause atherosclerosis? You get clots appearing on the damaged lining, and that's what causes heart attacks and strokes. Or what? Yeah, precisely. I mean, precisely, it does cause atherosclerosis. It does cause atherosclerosis. And there's recent data showing that LP little a is just as potent in causing atherosclerosis as the LDL cholesterol. But if you don't measure the LP little a, then you've got a hidden killer in the background, which is a disaster. Now, there's been a lot of debate about LP little a over the years. And some experts have said, or some specialists have said, well, LP little a really is something that causes inflammation in the artery, not atherosclerosis. And that's what causes the problem. Yeah, people have said lots of different things over the past, and the, the story's been evolving now over 20 or 30 years. But more recently, it's become very clear that it does directly contribute to the development of atherosclerosis. And this is especially evident in recent genetic studies. LP little a is a completely independent cause of atherosclerosis, cause of heart attacks, cause of strokes, cause of earlier death, and it's about the same potency as LDL cholesterol. And if you look at at a population level, what proportion of coronary heart disease, heart attacks, strokes, angina, can be attributed to LP little a? Yeah, that's a good question. We did a study at the Austin Hospital of consecutive patients coming in with heart attacks, and 50% had some elevation of LP little a. This is especially important in younger people who come in. That's more common. And where you feel, well, that cholesterol really wasn't quite high enough to cause a heart attack at such young age, the majority of those have elevated LP little a. Now, what contribution does lifestyle make? What lifestyle factors affect LP little a? LP little a is a consistent factor that's genetically driven. And if you measure the LP little a at the age of two years as an infant, And if the patients are still alive, you measure it again at the age of 80, there's no difference. It is completely impervious to any change in lifestyle. It's not affected by diet. It's not affected by exercise. It just stays there in the background. 
Now, some people would say the reason we don't test for it is that there's no treatment. Therefore, despite the fact that it would be interesting to know you've got LP little a elevated, there's nothing much we can do about it. Therefore, why test? At the present time, we don't have any immediately available therapies. We do, however, have genetic therapies like small interfering RNAs and antisense therapies to get into cells, which can lower the LP little a by 80 to 90 percent. So just to decode what you just said, overly simplifying that, it's a bit like the mRNA vaccine. You're sending RNA into the cells to change the messaging about the production of LP little a. That's right. You're sending blockers of the RNA. Do you have outcome so studies yet of those? Because, for example, you take high-density lipoprotein. People say, well, this is good for you. Therefore, more is going to be better. And they've tried elevating HDL. And in fact, it can make people worse. Do we know that these genetic therapies reduce their risk of coronary heart disease? At the moment, we have a number of clinical outcome studies in process. We'll have the results of the first ones in three to four years. We do have other agents that can drop it by 20-30%. Very high doses of niacin, the what we call PCSK9 inhibitors, they drop it by about 30%. And we have those available. But the ones that really going to knock it on the head, we're not going to have them available for three or four years. So instead of doing that at the present time, we lower the other risk factors much more powerfully. So if you have a heart attack, for instance your target LDL cholesterol must be below 1.4. But if you put that extra risk of a high LP little a in, then I would normally get a target LDL down to only 1.0 millimole per litre. So it's adding to the risk as little as possible. Right. So what you do is you take the other risk factors and try and minimise them to counteract the additional bad effect of the LP little a so you work harder at everything else. So who should have an LP little a test at the moment? My view is everyone should have an LP little a test. Well, so you think screening? Because I mean, yeah. the principle of screening is you should have a cheap, accurate test with an intervention uh-huh. that's going to make a difference to the outcome. Yeah, we know that in population studies, 20% of the whole population have a significantly elevated LP little a. So it's got a very, very high prevalence. So if you've got 20% of people in the population, it should be added to a normal cholesterol or lipid screening profile. But the caveat of that... It's going to cost you 50 bucks. It's going to cost 25 to 50 bucks, which is probably the price of a fairly fatty, cheesy pizza once in your life. The other thing to remember is because it doesn't change over time, you need it done once in your lifetime. So my personal view is that we should do it on one single occasion when we do a lipid profile, and obviously more particularly in people with high-risk family histories and so on. And number two, we should measure it in people who have heart attacks, in people who have coronary surgery, who have stents, people who have got kidney disease, people who have diabetes. These people should all have it done because if you have diabetes and a high LP little a, you're at massive risk of early stroke and heart attack. The other thing everyone should keep in mind that it's inherited in a way where 50% of all your first degree relatives on average will have it. So if you're a parent with a high LP little a, then on average, 
50% of your kids. On average, 50% of all your brothers and sisters. So if you have a family history where someone in your family's had a heart attack and the LP little a is elevated, then all first order relatives should have an LP little a measured just to know whether they have the very high risk or they don't have the very high risk. I can hear the health report audience galloping to their GP as we speak. I think they should. That's my personal view. David here, thanks for joining us. Good, thanks, Norman. David here is professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne and a cardiologist at Austin Health. Well, pretty scary stuff there. I would give you one piece of feedback, given that you are leading the charge on the PR mm-hmm. for this uh, substance. I think you need a snappier name than LP little a. It's a real mouthful. Why, why, why not the hidden killer? That sound good? I love it. I am curious to know, as you know, I'm always interested in the sort of like human evolutionary biology. Like why has this gene survived if it's so toxic? Well, I actually asked David that because if it's so toxic that you'd think the gene would have died out. And his argument is that it doesn't just cause atherosclerosis. LP little a is also involved in blood clotting and makes the blood more clottable or stops the breakdown of, uh, of blood clots. And so the theory is that when you got speared by the tusk of a mammoth, <laughs> you were less likely to bleed out. But, uh, you know, we can't go back to that time and find that out. All right. So hidden killer in certain circumstances and a saviour perhaps in others. I am curious as well about uh, sort of the testing side of things, because the more we look at blood lipids, the more we seem to find about what's useful and uh, dangerous about them. And I know that there's certain groups who are looking at ways of profiling this in a way that's much more detailed than the simple kind of cholesterol tests that we currently get. Yeah, it was a fascinating study from Western Australia in the last few days, looking at multiple blood tests on a pinprick. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds like Theranos. <laughs> yeah, so for people who don't know what we're talking about, Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, I think there's a movie about it. Uh, certainly she's been locked up in the slammer for it of, of massive fraud where she was talking about, uh, she was frightened of a blood test, of getting a needle in her arm and could you do it on a, blood, on a, on a simple blood spot and raise lots of money. Um, but so this is a this is a similar idea. Can you, for example, get people to take the blood by themselves at home, send it in, and have it tested? And but they were using a different technology. Hers was this mysterious lab on a chip where you you had an electronic chip which acted like a laboratory and did the testing. In this case, they were doing something called NMR spectroscopy, which is nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, on the spot of blood. And in 20 people, 10 men, 10 women, they compared venous blood, doing it the traditional way, to the blood spot and, to, and looking at a wide variety of tests, including cholesterol testing, and found it was pretty accurate. So maybe, so this isn't doing it at home or lab on a chip. This is legitimate technology. Um, but, you know, can you save people a trip into the pathologist to have their blood let? They can just do it at home and post it in. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, research out of Murdoch University. We're not, hopefully not putting them in the same basket as um, the fraudulent Elizabeth Holmes, but it's not available yet. No, it's, it's, there's a long way to go with this testing to you know, leg- legitimise it, you know, validate it and so on. And then you know, they'll have to put the health report on their payroll so that we promote it. Yeah, along with everyone else. Yeah. You're with the health report. We know people who spend time in prison are more likely to have physical and mental health problems. New data is showing that for children... 
any contact with the criminal justice system means they're more likely to die earlier and have health problems of every kind, even if they never actually go into custody. Is it the system causing the harm or are kids already at risk, also more likely to be targeted by the system? And what would it take to change this trend? These are questions being tackled by Australian researchers in collaboration with a group at Harvard University. Stuart Kinner is head of the Australian arm, the Justice Health Group. And he says the data is showing the same thing over and over again. What we wanted to know is what is the risk of a young person who's had contact with the youth justice system in Queensland dying? And tragically, what we found is that the rate of death in these young people is more than four times as high as it should be. And now that's keeping in mind that most of these kids have never been in youth detention. Most of these kids, in fact, have only ever been charged with an offence and only a minority of them were ever in detention. That minority had a risk of death that was more than six times what you see in the general community. But for people who haven't even been in detention, what could be behind this disproportionately high rate of death? The youth justice system is not causing these deaths. It's certainly not helping, unfortunately. But what happens is the youth justice system, among other things, effectively selects vulnerable, at-risk, traumatised children and young people. And they spend in Australia an average of eight days in detention, if they go there at all. And then they return to the community and often to the very difficult, stressful and traumatising circumstances that they came from. So what we're seeing here is a system that's picking up young people who are at extraordinarily increased risk, who aren't getting the support they need, incarcerating them for eight days, and then unfortunately not doing nearly enough to support them once they return to the community. Right. These are kids who are at baseline at increased risk of poor health for whatever reasons. They've got some sort of intersection with the system, the government, Surely that's an opportunity to intervene if they are at higher need of sort of health services. It is, and it's ironic that we know the factors that lead to people being involved in the criminal justice system are poverty, discrimination, racism, mental health problems, intellectual disability, substance use issues. We know that these things are important drivers of people ending up in that system, whether we're talking about children or adults, and yet we don't do nearly enough to address those issues either while those people are in custody or really critically, once they're back in the community. But they're still doing the wrong thing. Look, the work that we're doing is not focused on the criminal justice system, and I'm not trying to second-guess the decisions of the criminal justice system. Let's just put, park that for a moment and think, OK, so somebody has been judged as, as being guilty of an offence, they've been sent to prison or to youth detention. If we take that as a given, the question now is, well, what do we do now? Let's do something useful. Let's do something that's good for that young person. Let's do something that's good for the community that they came from and will return to. And that's about investing our resources wisely and in ways that the evidence tells us will work. What do we know then? Like, what does work? What works, firstly, is keeping young people out of youth detention. We know that internationally, many countries around the world have raised their minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. The United Nations has suggested that Australia follows suit. At the moment, unfortunately, it hasn't happened. In most parts of the country, children as young as 10 can be locked up in youth detention. Now, it's not, there's not a lot, but the number should be zero. 
So one of the things that's happened really recently is your group in conjunction with the FXB Centre for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University have put out a big report. And one of the things that you do is you contrast the situation as it is in Australia with things like the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child saying that they don't line up. That's right. So, look, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which nearly every country in the world has ratified, including Australia, basically says that all children retain the right to the highest attainable standard of health. In other words, we want every child in the world to have the best health they can have. A fairly simple concept. Unfortunately, when it comes to youth detention, the UN has issued another document that says these kids get adequate medical care. And so what we've pointed out, that sounds like we're just playing semantics, but where it really pans out in practice is that Australia, like every other country, needs to meet those minimum standards. And by lowering the standard, by lowering the bar for these kids who are the kids most in need of high quality care, what we're seeing is an instance of what medical folks call the inverse care law. In other words, the people most in need of high quality care are least likely to get it. What would change look like in practical terms in Australia? In Australia, firstly, we were talking about youth justice, raising the minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14 would be the first thing to do. There are better ways to respond to behavioural issues in young, vulnerable children than to put them in youth detention. Secondly, investing in systems to ensure that children who go to youth detention get the care they need. For example, not excluding children in detention from Medicare, Mm. which is a a staggering omission that we could talk about. But for the vast majority of kids who never go to youth detention, setting aside the criminal justice response, recognising that we're picking up young, vulnerable, traumatised kids, often with complex health and social needs, and seizing that opportunity to try to do something to improve their life circumstances, irrespective of the criminal justice matters that they're involved in. How likely is it that a politician goes, yes, this is the platform that I'm going to campaign on? I mean, it's not without precedent. We all know that there's a the simple road is the tough on crime rhetoric approach, but we also know that it just doesn't work. We know that incarceration is criminogenic, meaning that if you send someone to prison, it makes them more likely to go back. We know that most people released from youth detention and most people released from prison in Australia go back. We spend more than $6 billion a year on prisons and more than $1.3 billion a year on youth detention. Every child we send to youth detention costs over a million dollars a year. It's not money well spent. Okay, if I'm just sitting at home and I'm hearing this and I'm going, well, okay, I'm not a politician, I'm not sending a young person to youth detention? Like, what can I do? Quite a lot. In fact, the general community has a lot of power here. The first thing I'd suggest is to call out any politician that you're interacting with on tough on crime rhetoric. The next time you hear your local MP talk about being tough on young offenders, call them out and say, where's the evidence that that works? Secondly, if you're speaking to your MP, support calls to raise the age. Go to raisetheage.org and support the national and international calls for Australia to follow most of our international counterparts and raise the minimum age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. And then thirdly, just remember that in Australia, about 70,000 people go to prison each year. We know that at last financial year, 4,350 children went to youth detention. 
and almost 9,000 kids were under youth justice supervision. That's every year. So you're already, we are all already interacting with people who've been through this system every day. So just remember that people who've been in that system are just members of our community, no different to you or I. Stuart, thank you so much. My pleasure. Professor Stuart Kinner is head of the Justice Health Group at Curtin University and Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Damien Lenane wasn't a child when he was put into prison. He says that's mostly because he was lucky not to get caught, but other aspects of his experience gel with Professor Stuart Kinner's findings. Regardless of age, people go into prison with higher than average need for health care, especially mental health, but they have less access to it inside, making things even worse. And then I went into prison and I had a mandatory appointment with a prison psychologist and I told her the truth. I told her that I, you know, before I got in trouble, I realised I needed to talk to someone and that I'd been making really incredible progress. And I said I really thought it would be beneficial if I could continue that therapy in prison. And she smiled sadly and she said something which has changed my life and it's the reason I'm doing a PhD now. And what she said was, Damien, everyone in prison would benefit from therapy, but there's no funding for that. My job's just to assess whether people are suicidal or dangerous and to write reports for probation and parole. I was assessed as a low to medium risk of reoffending, which I believe is the lowest assessment you can get. And because of that, I was told that uh, not only did I not have to complete any rehabilitation, I wasn't eligible to complete any, even if I wanted to. You have to be assessed as medium high or higher to um, be eligible for rehabilitation. And, you know, there's this feeling amongst the general public that our prisons are rehabilitating people, and that could not be further from the truth. There's no therapy or rehabilitation, but you're surrounded by angry people who uh, also need help and aren't getting it. And, you know, so something I've always thought was really ironic was that um, they didn't give me any therapy in prison, but they put me in a cell with a guy who was in there for manufacturing machine guns. And so now I know where to buy a machine gun. I could get one today if I wanted to. Yeah, we think prisons are there protecting us. Uh, they're not. They're just part of a, like a larger problem. They're basically um, creating more crimes. We're going to give society a six-month break from this person committing crimes, and then when they get out, they're going to be three times more likely to commit one, you know. Inspired by his own experience, Damien is now doing a PhD into this chasm between the need for health services in the prison system and what's actually available. I'm looking at how prisoners have expressed um, frustrations with the lack of healthcare and mental healthcare in prison over time. And something I've um, found which is depressing is that uh, things haven't really changed much in the last 40 years at all, arguably even longer. Like the same things people were complaining about then, they're complaining about now as well. I spent my entire sentence wondering why healthcare in prison was so dreadful. And about three weeks before I got out, I finally wrote a stern worded letter to the Minister for Corrections at the time, uh, which was David Elliott, and I said, um, amongst other things, I was like, I was on a mental health care plan before I went into prison. It would have been really beneficial, not just for me, but for society at large. And um, I still have the response I got from his office, which was very terse. It just said, um, the mental health care plan is provided through Medicare. Prisoners are not entitled to Medicare access. We've done research on this. It would be cost-effective 
part of the reason uh, there's no Medicare access is because, you know, the government doesn't want to foot the bill. But, you know, nobody thinks, you know, more than one step ahead. We know that people who receive both physical and mental health care in prison are less likely to re-offend. And so we know that it would be cost effective for taxpayers if we got Medicare in prisons. But again, nobody thinks that far ahead. And as soon as you raise the issue of improving the rights of people in prison, even if you're doing it for the purpose of reducing crime rather than actually helping prisoners, the public bolt so that politicians don't want to touch it. They know it'd save taxpayers a fortune, but it's just something that gets overlooked. Damien Linane is a PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle and editor of Paper Chained, an art and writing magazine for people in prison. Isn't it great that there are people like Damien being advocates for this? And oh, absolutely. So yeah. successful in life, which is not true of everybody. Mm. That's it for the health report for this week. But if you want just a little bit more of us talking about health, you can always check out What's That Rash? Yes, this week we are answering a question familiar to those with a sore jaw and a hefty quote from their dentist. Why do we even have wisdom teeth? And what's the best way to deal with them? Search What's That Rash in the ABC Listen app and hit follow so that you never miss an episode. And if you're not already following the health report, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Fix that immediately and subscribe. And we'll see you next week. Bye till then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.